This conversation on COVID-19 is made possible by Discovery. Hello, I'm Alec Hogg, and welcome to episode 57 of Inside COVID-19. In this episode, South Africa's healthcare system is holding up despite a surge in hospitalizations. The South African High Court ruled against guard risk with costs after it was sued by a restaurant demanding settlement on a business interruption insurance claim. But market leader Suntum still refuses to budge. And we'll have some in-depth perspectives on the COVID-19 experience in South Africa and elsewhere from UK-based Professor Alan Whiteside. Inside COVID-19 from BizNews. In today's COVID-19 headlines, South Africa's confirmed coronavirus cases broke above 200,000 yesterday, making it the 15th highest of any country on earth. South Africa is in fourth place on new daily cases and ninth on daily deaths. Although the impact of the virus continues to rise, there are now clear signs that the Western Cape has peaked, with Gauteng becoming the new national hotspot. Thus far, health workers, with the support of field hospitals, have been coping with the influx of COVID-19 patients. Context on all of this coming up with Discovery's Head of Clinical Excellence, Dr. Nalutandu Nemotsarani. Brazilian President Jair Bolsonaro has become the second sceptical high-profile political leader to contract the virus. After spending time in intensive care when hospitalised in April, UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson thanked the medical staff there for saving his life. 65-year-old Brazilian Bolsonaro, however, is an outlier amongst world leaders, denouncing the virus as, quote, a little cold, unquote, and last week did not wear a mask when attending a 4th of July party at the US Embassy in Brasilia despite having been ordered to do so last month by a Brazilian court. Brazil has 1.6 million confirmed cases of COVID-19 and over 66,000 mortalities, highest of any country except the United States, which yesterday went past 3 million infections and 133,000 mortalities. The impact of COVID-19 on South African consumer confidence has been dramatic, with the F&B BER index dropping to a level last seen after the destructive aftermath of the Rubicon speech in 1985. Second quarter responses to the survey caused the index to drop from an already weak minus 9 to what the compilers describe as, quote, a shocking minus 33, unquote. It is only three index points below the all-time low recorded 35 years ago. The survey was conducted in the first half of last month following the switch to the less restrictive lockdown level 3 on June the 1st. South Africa's largest short-term insurance company, Suntum, says it is sticking to its policy of not paying claims from clients with business interruption policies despite Mr. Justice André Lachrancy's strong ruling today that these claims are valid. The judge ruled against 
insurer guard risk on all counts and said it had to not only meet the claim of Cape Town restaurant Cafe Chameleon, but also to pay the costs of its lawyers. More on that story later in this episode. Earlier today, shareholder activists Just Share referred to the judgment when tackling Suntum Chief Executive Lisa Lambrechts at the company's annual general meeting. Here's her reply. We can't really comment on a, on a ruling or the business of, of a competitor, but we have seen the ruling. We are busy studying it. It doesn't really change our view at the moment, and we, the plan is for us to continue with the court case that we have on the 1st of September. We are considering all options, so just a question on arbitration. We are still considering all options. Obviously, as Santam, we have great empathy for the businesses impacted by this virus. But we can, as a company, only commit to paying claims in line with the policy wording for which the premiums were paid. We are confident of our interpretation at the moment that national lockdown is not, not a covered peril or a trigger for, for these cases. What is good is that we have a case regarding um, this contingent business interruption that will be heard in the Western Cape High Court in September. And we are actually filing the opposing affidavits today. And these papers that are being filed deal comprehensively with the issues that will have to be considered by the court in this matter. As sometimes we really welcome the opportunity to obtain legal clarity as soon as possible. And we do think that the best way to get clarity um, on these claims is through an an expedited uh, legal process, but through the courts of South Africa. But we really believe an expedited court process. And, and, And I mean, for us, it is about not trying to delay the court process, but to get to clarity as soon as possible, will clear uncertainty for everyone involved. So that is the Suntum position. Inside COVID-19, from Biznews. Dr. Nolotandu Nemwatsarani is with us as per one of our regular visitors here on the Inside COVID-19 podcast. Noli, we're now seeing the infections in South Africa escalating, and with it comes more hospital admissions, are they managing to cope? Sadly, we are at that stage now where in certain provinces we're seeing an increased number of cases. And with that, obviously, we are going to start seeing certain people getting admitted. I think maybe just to put it in context, we know that if we're looking at uh, people who are infected, 80% will safely be managed in the out-of-hospital environment, whereas 20% will require hospitalization. But obviously, as the volumes increase, the 20% becomes quite a significant number. I think we started seeing this in the Western Cape, where they had their first surge before other provinces like the Eastern Cape and Gauteng followed. And I think we are also hearing that in KZN, there is a demand for hospitalization as well. What it really boils down to is that once we see these increasing number of infections, there will be a requirement for hospital bed capacity. And Eastern Cape is currently, I think, uh, struggling. And, and I think it also talks to what was in place prior to, to COVID-19. And we know that the Eastern Cape they had already some challenges from a healthcare bed supply point of view. Gauteng, maybe not as much, but we are seeing that Gauteng is catching up in terms of numbers to Western Cape. But we have not really had any indication that they are reaching full capacity there is definitely strain in the hospital environment, some facilities more than others. But I think right now we are at that point 
that obviously if you look at why we had the lockdown, it was really to delay the increase in number of, of cases to prepare the system. But there is no system that can be fully prepared for the significant number of cases that may require hospital care. In the Western Cape, they seemed to handle it okay, also with additional facilities, tent beds and stuff like that. Is it also the situation in Gauteng that we have the facilities in, in our province to handle it? Yes. So actually, the, the Gauteng Department of Health, they've informed us that they've repurposed quite a few beds in their existing facilities. You will be aware of the field hospital in Nazrek. And I think they are looking at various other facilities that they can convert into field hospitals. If you think about the Western Cape, they had the Cape Town ICC, which was uh, catering for those cases that were not uh, sick and not requiring you know, intensive care so they could decant from their other facilities into this field hospital. So I think field hospitals become a very good alternative to ordinary hospital bed capacity. So they improve that and allow for that movement of patients specifically when they no longer require intensive care. And just to close off with, it got very personal for me this week when a friend is on a ventilator in a hospital, so he's very ill with COVID-19. Have we got enough ventilators now so that people who need them are are going to be able to access? This is a very important question. We're getting quite a lot of questions even from some of our members around ventilators. I think at the start of the pandemic, we saw there was a, a lot of focus on ventilators. And I think what we've also learned from other countries, which is maybe a blessing that we are only seeing a surge at a later stage. So it gives us that opportunity to actually learn from countries like Italy, where actually the outcomes related to ventilation were not great, where they were actually very poor. So there are other interventions that are being deployed now, like high-flow nasal oxygen, you know, nursing patients in the prone position, which is lying on their stomachs, that have been shown to actually improve outcomes better than being ventilated. So I think the focus is really not on ventilating every patient who comes in. I think majority of patients can still be managed in a general ward, getting oxygen and, you know, nest in those various positions that improve outcomes. Only the very sick patients who need ventilation need to get ventilation, but with the understanding that mortality once a person gets into the ICU setting and also get ventilated is also very high. So I think for me, maybe the message here is to say, if you can prevent the infection, please prevent the infection, the non-pharmacological Interventions work. Wearing of masks, we still be, see people not adhering to wearing of masks. People are not socially distancing. We're seeing people getting tired and fatigued with some of these interventions. But we're saying we are not out of this yet. We are actually reaching the peak and therefore people must not get tired. And also, if you do get infected, please be aware that 80% of people can still be safely managed in the out of hospital environment. You know, there are devices that the high risk that people can use like your pulse oximeters to monitor at home so that only if you are seeing deterioration can you be admitted in a hospital setting. And those who are admitted in hospital, not everyone is going to require a ventilator. There are other interventions that can be provided for, still contribute to good clinical outcomes. Inside COVID-19 from BizNews. Well, it's quite an important day today. Ryan Woolley has been representing about 500 tourism companies. And the first of these court challenges has now been settled and in your favor. 
maybe just give us a little bit of background about the company Cafe Chameleon and why it went to court and what it was wanting to get from Guard Risk Insurance. Cafe Chameleon is not one of our clients, but it is obviously an interested party. It, uh, its insurer, HRC Guard Risk, decided to reject their claim for the lockdown period and refused to make any interim payments. What happened was the restaurant group took on the insurer and through an urgent application, the insurer argued against the urgency, but the judge ruled that time was allowed to play out. What would happen is that the company would fold and the the claim would die with it. So from an urgency perspective, the the judge allowed that to be heard. Then it went into the detail around whether the lockdown is a separate intervening cause or if it is caused by COVID-19. And Judge LaGrange was absolutely categoric. This is causation is legal as well as factual is because of COVID-19 and has ordered the insurer to pay the claim in full. I had a chat just last night with the chief risk officer of Suntum, the biggest insurance company in South Africa. And in other words, what he was saying was that it's government's fault, not insurance companies' fault. And as a consequence of that, because it's government's fault, insurance companies aren't going to pay. This judgment today, which in fact was also with costs, so it wasn't just a judgment in favor of the restaurant company. The insurance company has got to pay for the legal counsel of the restaurant. It seems to be pretty comprehensive. However, the judge did say that he is allowing them to appeal. Yes, I think it's inevitable. I think God was got deciding today whether to appeal the matter or not. You know, we anticipate that this is just the first victory um, that we're going to take and uh, it will enhance our settlement negotiations with the insurers. But the appeal process, depending on how quickly the appeal can happen, it still might take a significant period of time. And uh, our clients, again, you know, we can't wait for that. But the insurers would be very circumspect, you know, running the gauntlet at the appeal court when they've already had quite a credible judge rule quite comprehensively. You would wonder, as an outsider, what the grounds would be for an appeal, for, in other words, going and having the whole thing heard again. Is there anything in here that stands out to you? No, nothing nothing at all. I think that the judge has really reasoned it well, and I think that it's all the points around causation that we have been quite vocal about our view. Sometimes different view has been squashed here. And the fact that they still want to go to court to have their hearing is quite surprising. You know, this is a precedent. The appeal will happen. And then I think from there, we'll, we'll see, you know, where it goes. I think one of the things that the other defenses that Suntum raised, sorry, that HRC raised, uh, guard risk is that they said that to have these claims paid would open the door and be catastrophic for the industry. Well, we've been also quite vocal in giving a solution to the insurers in terms of a compromise settlement. And again, we appeal to them. This is the time. Save the industry, save the tourism sector, and let's walk forward having these claims paid. We were on a webinar, yourself and William van der Rie from Cathedral Peak Hotel, and he's one of your clients who has a similar action, presumably, against guard risk. Is he now going forward with it? Well, I think that the victory yesterday has definitely made us uh, rethink our legal strategy. So we still have got a few more consultations to have. 
uh, before we decide. William Fenderit is definitely, as one of our clients, will be one of those that we consider using as our test case. So, yes, and I think that, you know, in his case, as you've heard, he's got a claim of 11, 12 odd million. He's been offered 500,000 rand by guard risk as a settlement to walk away. And we, again, we just find that we can't accept that, you know, not, not in terms of there's no compromise at those sort of numbers. So we're definitely going to be pushing forward. Ryan, when I was talking with the chief risk officer of Suntum last night, the question I put to him was, if all of the claims were met, would that put the insurance industry into bankruptcy? And he said, no, Suntum has got plenty of reserves. Even in the worst case scenario, it could manage all of this. But they're fighting it on a position of principle. They don't believe in pure insurance that they can justify this. I think that Judge LaGrange has dealt with it very carefully. The other issue that sometimes have is that we've got an Ebola case that we handled against one of Suntum's companies, Emerald, in 2014-2015. And the effects of the Ebola outbreak in Sierra Leone were very similar to what government has done in terms of this COVID-19 outbreak. And there they had no issue paying the claim. So for us, this isn't an issue about the legal principles. This is an issue of financial issues and financial um, integrity of Suntum, and they, I think that that's why they're fighting this as hard as they are. We've given all the insurers the opportunity of a compromise. We think that they can do that without their reinsurers. Again, we don't know why we are, or South Africa is bearing the brunt of aggressive reinsurers potentially not wanting to pay their claims. The insurers need to have the courage to stand up to them and to enforce and get them to pay. Inside COVID-19 from BizNews. Professor Alan Whiteside is with us uh, talking from his home in East Anglia. Norwich, Norfolk, East Anglia. And we've been talking a little about some of the coverage that we've had on BizNews. What we try to do on BizNews is be a platform to all views. But sometimes we've got to be a little more careful, particularly when it comes to COVID-19. Just unpack a little for us what we should be looking for. Well, I think the first thing that we need to be aware of is that the way that the public health and the governments began this whole process was to scare the shit out of everyone, telling us how many cases there were going to be. This wasn't unique to South Africa, where Slim Karim put out some pretty daunting figures, but we also saw it with Niall Ferguson and various members of SAGE in the UK, and we saw it in the United States with Anthony Fauci. So unfortunately, those are the numbers that have stuck in people's heads. We're not going to see that number of people being infected, affected and dying. But that doesn't mean the science was wrong. It meant that at the time we did what we thought was best. And there is always an element of wanting to make it serious enough that people will take it as seriously as possible, which we saw happen with the HIV AIDS epidemic as well, of course. So the numbers for South Africa, for instance, were 60 to 80,000. They were since adjusted down to 40,000. Now we're getting actuaries saying it's unlikely to reach 10,000. We're talking about mortalities here. However, at the moment, we're at 3,200 and seemingly rising quite strongly. How should we be viewing all of this? I think with South Africa, I really haven't a clue. I mean, I, I know that people are doing their absolute best to come out with clear figures. I mean, it's like in the UK, Boris Johnson stood up and said, we'll be very unlucky to reach 20,000. And here we are at 44,000 and counting. The reality is 
that the worst projections of what this epidemic might do seem to have been overstated almost everywhere. The possible exception might be South Africa, where we might see more cases than we had anticipated. Why? I don't know what's going on in South Africa. I think it's a combination of poverty and HIV, perhaps, for those people who are not on treatment, although we know people who are on treatment won't necessarily have a, a worse outcome with COVID or even be more likely to catch it. But that may be part of it. I hate to say this, but I think the government shot its bolt. I think they did the lockdown too soon and didn't keep it on for long enough. But then they're walking that incredibly difficult balance between health and economics and livelihoods. I think the other thing which we have to be very mindful of is the vast majority of people are not going to be made ill by this disease. So we're making a decision to place health as being more important than economics, and we're doing it around the world. And I think that's a discussion which has not been properly engaged with by any country. When you say South Africa did the lockdown too soon and then for not long enough, surely the economic implications of extending the lockdown would have been even more horrific than what we're seeing. So I think there are lockdowns and lockdowns, and we're actually beginning to see this around the world at the moment. In England, the city of Leicester has been locked down because there's serious increase in cases there. In Australia, the city of Melbourne has now been locked down again. So what we did initially was a blanket across the country. We're all in this together, folks, lockdown. And now I think we can start being more nuanced and applying it to specific areas. I don't have any problem with governments placing the entire nation under lockdown at the beginning. The science was too new. The epidemic was too new. We didn't know enough. But what I think we should have moved to, and this is where I think I believe we failed, was to more nuanced lockdowns. So in other words, by geographical area or by population group. And when I say population group in the South African context, that's not about race. That's about ages. I think that people who are over 70 should still be locked down in some way and given support by the government and the community. But people under 70 who are at much lower risk and people in their 20s and 30s ought not to be locked down in the same way. So looking ahead, we've, we've got some months still where deep vigilance is required. Absolutely. And it's also going to vary province to province. And in South Africa, we've almost had the Western Cape now, which seems like it, the worst might be behind it. But elsewhere in the country, facilities coming under a lot of pressure. Absolutely. And there is that wave of sick people who require hospital treatment, which is the real threat to any country's well-being, economy, etc. And you will see countries going through that. The one thing which I do think is and I'm going to write about this, and I need to think about it before I write about it comprehensively, is that things have never been as bad as we feared they would be. The susceptible population has never been as large as we thought it might be. So if you took the UK and said 80% of people are going to be infected, as was said early on in the epidemic, we're talking about 30 to 35 million people. The answer is it's nowhere near that. It's, It's probably in the order of well, I wouldn't know without looking at the data, but it's it's a lot less. So I think that there may be people who have some immunity for all sorts of reasons that we don't know. Maybe the common cold. It's been hinted at in some of the papers I've been reading. 
There may be people who are not going to get infected because they're lucky. So there are all sorts of things going on that we need to think about. When will we have more visibility on this? On the likelihood of what's going to happen, I would say within a month. I mean, remember, we're only six months into a new epidemic. And my God, we've gained so much information already. This has been episode 57 of Inside COVID-19. The full interviews of the highlights that are featured in this podcast are available separately on the biznews.com website or app. Thanks for being with us. I'm Alec Hogg. Until tomorrow, cheerio. This conversation on COVID-19 was made possible by Discovery.